Amen. We will dismiss our kids to Kids Church over the next several weeks. Uh, They are going to be talking about emotions. They're going to be talking about uh, how God has made us uh, spiritual beings, emotional beings, uh, and that while we have emotions that we must trust in God's Word and make our decisions based upon God's Word, not based upon how we feel. So uh, that's what they get to talk about over the next several weeks. So our kids will be dismissed to Kids Church, uh, and we'll stay here in adult care. Uh, and so if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 13, as we continue to walk through this journey, we continue to walk through the book of 1 Samuel, uh, we're, going to, to, we're going to talk about uh, this morning Israel's helplessness. Israel finds themselves in, uh, in between a rock and a hard place, they find themselves completely helpless before God, and we understand because of the history of redemption, we understand because of God's, uh, God's faithful word that helpless does not mean hopeless. And so we're going to look at 1 Samuel chapter 13 this morning, verses 1 through 23. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 1. <clears throat> Saul was 40 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 32 years over Israel. Now Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel, of which 2,000 were with Saul in Michmas, in the hill country of Bethel, while 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah and Benjamin. But he sent away the rest of the people, each to his own tent. And Jonathan smote the garrison of the Philistines in Gibeah. And the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout the land saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all of Israel heard the news that Saul had smitten the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become odious to the Philistines. So the people were summoned then to Saul at Gilgal. Now the Philistines assembled to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and people like the sand which is on the seashore in abundance. And they came up and they camped at Mixmah, east of Beth Haven, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, the people were hard-pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and cliffs and cellars and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. But as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. Now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and all of the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offerings, and it came about that as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, that behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to greet him and greeted him. But Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, Because I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the appointed days, and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmas, then therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said, You have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as a rule over his people. 
because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and his son Jonathan and the people who were present with them, staying in Gibeah of Benjamin, while the Philistines camped in Nixmas. And the raiders came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Orphra and the other to Shual, and another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboam and toward the wilderness. And no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. And the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make sword or spear. So all of Israel went down to the Philistines, each one to sharpen his plowshare and his mattock and his axe and his hoe. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshare and the mattocks and the forks and the axes to fit in the holes. So it came about on the day of the battle. Neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any one of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan and his son. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass at Mixmah. Let's pray. God, we see this helpless situation in the nation of Israel. Lord, may we be reminded that helplessness is not hopelessness. Lord, may we see the consequences of our sin. May we see the consequences of our failure to be obedient. God, and may you impress upon us your desire for us to follow your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I pray that as you leave today, that you will have hope in God. There are times in our lives, there are times in our lives when life kicks us in the teeth. And regardless of of where we are in our life, that there will come a time whenever difficulties, trials, hardships, tragedies will come upon you, And you will be in a place of helplessness. You will be between a rock and a hard place. You will find yourself just where Israel was. That they were standing there, 600 men, because the rest of them had fled. They were standing there, 600 men. They were looking out at 30,000 chariots, uh, uh, 6,000 cavalry units, and infantry troops as far as they could see. And they look around and there's 600 of them. And they say, okay. Things are not going to end well for me. This is not going to go well. All of us have found ourselves in those situations. We are are in a situation at work, or we're in a situation in our family, or we're in a situation in our personal life, and we look out, and we see see what is around us, and we look at at all of the the logical matrices, and, 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 and we say, you know what? Things are not going to end well for me. This is not going to go well. Desertion and surrender becomes very tempting. I want to point out to you that this is not a new phenomenon. As we are called as Christians, as, as you know, John made the, the wonderful uh, commitment this morning that I am going to walk with Christ all the days of our life. John, I'm going to uh, just shoot straight with you. The, the life following Christ is not an easy one. It is not for the faint of heart. That's why Jesus makes the statement, all those who endure to the end will be saved. Jesus doesn't say all those who who, who have an emotional experience one day will be saved. Jesus says all those who endure 
to the end will be saved because the Christian life is a difficult one. There's no coincidence that the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs because the, the walk to walk with Christ is not an easy one. It is a difficult one, but it is paved with joy and hope and peace and comfort that comes only from the Lord. It is not one free from difficulty. In fact, Paul spent his entire life traveling throughout Asia Minor. And as he traveled throughout Asia Minor, Paul poured his life into people. He planted church after church after church. He experienced rejection. He experienced shipwreck. He experienced beatings. He experienced the difficulty of a life following Jesus. And as he poured his life into people, some followed him. Some like Timothy and Titus and and Barnabas. And there were many followers of Paul. People like Jason in Thessalonica. uh, People like Priscilla and Aquila who left a legacy of faith. But then there were those like Demas. And as Paul gives his farewell address to the second Timothy and Paul's in prison about to die, listen what he says about Demas. He says, for Demas, someone that Paul had discipled, Paul had had led to the Lord, Paul had, had poured his life into, he said, for Demas has loved this present world and has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. The temptation to desert, the temptation to, to leave the hardships of following Christ and to, and to run to the comforts of this world and to fill your belly with what this world has to offer and to, to pursue pleasure of this world rather than the life of obedience of following Christ is tempting. And that's where, that's where Israel finds itself in the midst of the difficulty. If you go back to 1 Samuel, if you go back to 1 Samuel, Jonathan whether by the the command of Saul or on his own initiative, we're not sure. But Jonathan destroys an entire Philistine garrison. And everybody's like, yeah, Israel's going to, they're going to wipe out the Philistines. Saul's going to be the king. We're going to restore Israel to to its glory. Israel's going to be the, the, the great civilization that God has called us to be. And then the Philistines get wind what happened. And they said, yeah, that's not going to happen. And they rally the troops. And they amass an army so great that that Israel gets struck with fear. And they begin to desert. And they begin to hide. And they begin to run. And that's where Israel finds itself. In the midst of difficulty, desertion, running, hiding, becomes very tempting. And I'm going to tell you, church, running from hardship, running from hurt, running from pain is always the easiest solution at first. But when you run, when you hide, when you avoid dealing with the reality of life, it always, it always comes back to bite you. It's important for us to note that Saul was almost obedient. We read the text, Saul was, was almost obedient. How many of us have ever been there? We have been almost obedient. 
We've been partially obedient. Am I the only one? My mom would say, my mom would, would often say, you know, you know, you can't have any friends over whenever we go, uh, you know, if, if you're home alone, you can't have any friends over. And, and we, were, we were almost obedient. We didn't have any friends over, but we left and we went to go hang out with our friend's house. And, and that, that typically did not end well. You know, my, my, my wife will say, you know, I, I need you to clean this or I need you to do this. And, and, and I'll come home and she'll say, did you, did you do what I asked you to do? And, and, and immediately I say, yeah. And then I go do what she's asked me to do. You know, we are, we're, we're almost obedient. We, we see this with, with Achan in Jericho. God said, destroy everything under the ban. And God destroyed, the, the nation of Israel destroyed everything. Except what Achan took and buried under his tent. And we understand that partial obedience is complete disobedience. Now, where are you going with this preacher where you said that Saul was almost obedient? If you go back and you look at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, God told Samuel, he said, you are going to leave the place where you're at, which is where the Philistine garrison is, and you are going to go to the place that I tell you. 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 8, he says, You shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and sacrifice and peace offerings, and you shall wait seven days until I come to you and show you what you should do. So he says, leave the place where you're at, where the Philistine garrison is at, and go to this other place and wait for me seven days. And Saul did that. He left the place where he was, and he went to Gilgal, and he waited for the Lord for almost seven full days. Now, I want to point out that Saul's obedience saved his life. Because had Saul remained where he was, he would have been in the very place where the Philistine army was gathering, and Saul would have certainly been killed. Saul's obedience saved his life, but Saul's partial obedience cost him his dynasty. Because Saul waited almost seven full days but in the middle of day seven Saul began to sweat Saul began to say now God told me that after seven days he was going to come and it's been six days and 12 hours and I I don't see Samuel I don't hear any horses coming I don't hear any chariots coming and whenever Samuel gets here we've got to prepare the offering and we've got to do this and we've got to do that and Samuel's not coming And the army is on its way. And I can see just two miles down the road. I can see 30,000 chariots. I can see 6,000 cavalry. I can see infantry as far as I can see. And my people are leaving me in droves. And I am fearful. And fear always, fear always leads to us acting in a way that's contrary to God's will. It's interesting, every time God shows up to his people, what does he tell them? Every time he appears to his people, whether it's through an angel, whether it's a theophany, whether it is is Christ appearing in his resurrected form, what does he say? He says, do not fear, because fear leads to disobedience. Fear leads to haste. Fear leads to us acting in contrast and acting contrary to God's word. Saul was fearful of the attack. And Saul assumes the role of the prophet. And Saul begins to sacrifice. 
It appeared that God had abandoned Saul. It appeared that God had abandoned Israel. It appeared that God had left Israel to deal with the Philistines all of their own. Guys, we cannot trust our perspective. We cannot trust the appearances. We cannot trust what we see. We have to trust God and His Word. Because what we see, our perspective, the appearances of things, is tainted by sin, is tainted by this fallen world. Whenever Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, teaching, and there were 5,000 people, it appeared that five loaves of bread and two fish were not going to be enough to feed 5,000 people. When Jesus was with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and the winds and the waves beat upon the boat, it appeared that they were going to drown. So they said, wake Jesus up. We can't trust our appearance. We can't trust our perspective because it is skewed. Because we have a very very limited, very finite understanding. God's understanding and God's perspective is sovereign. God's perspective is pure and clear and holy and right. And we have to trust God rather than our perspective. Saul, being fearful of what was coming, acted in haste. Go with me, if you will, to Genesis chapter 3. Fear leads to hasty decisions. There's a parallel between Genesis chapter 3 and 1 Samuel chapter 13. Genesis chapter 3, verse 10. God comes in verse 9 and he asks Adam, he says, where are you? In verse 10, Adam said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden and I was afraid fear leads to hasty decisions so what did i do i was afraid because i was naked so i hid from you what was israel doing whenever they were fearful of of the philistines they were running they were hiding he says i was afraid so i hid fear leads to hasty decisions and then I want you to notice what God does, or what Adam does in verse 12 and 13. And the man said to me, God, I'm sorry, verse 11, God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man does what every man does. He blames his wife. Because it was her fault. Verse 12. And the man said, the woman that you gave me, she's the one who gave me the, she's the one who gave me from the tree and I ate. And it's interesting, verse 13, the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman blames the serpent. This is the American pastime, church. It's transfer of blame. It's not your fault. It's your parents' fault. It's not your fault. You have all of these mental and emotional hardships. And, and, and I mean, after all, it's the way you were raised. It's the environment that you grew up in. It's not your fault you can't find a job. It's the Republicans' fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's not your fault you don't have health insurance. It's Congress's fault. 
It's not your fault there's all these natural disasters. It's not your fault we flooded. It's, it's, it's all the development. You see what we do? We don't ever want to take responsibility for our actions. Adam, Adam shirked his responsibility as being the man of the household. When the serpent came up, who did the serpent address? He addressed Eve. Where was Adam? He was sitting right there. As the man, as the husband, as the protector and the provider of his household, he should have looked at the serpent and he should have said, if you have something to say, you need to speak to me. I am to protect my wife. I am to provide for her. I am to be her caretaker. You need to have something to say. You need to take it up with me. But Adam said, hey, she can take care of herself. He said, this is on you. Husbands, God has called you to protect and provide for your wife. God has called you to be the man of the household. God has called you to love her as Christ loved the church, to give yourself for her. And whenever we, whenever we place these responsibilities of running the household and making the decisions upon them, we are placing them in a situation that God has not designed them to be in. That doesn't mean in any way, shape, or form that they are, that they are, are less than man, but that they are equal in dignity and they're equal in value, yet God has given them very distinctly different roles. And we as husbands should, should provide for and should care for and protect our wives. It wasn't Eve's fault. It was Adam's fault. Go back to Samuel. Samuel shows up. He says, Saul, what did you do? Same thing that God said to Adam. He said, what did you do? And look at Saul's response. Verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, I saw the people were deserting. I saw the people were scattering. You didn't come when the Philistines were assembling. He made justification and blame. Anytime we find ourselves confronted with sin, our immediate response and our immediate reaction is to justify why we've done what we've done and blame it on someone else. Can't say amen. Sometimes you say ouch. Because that is the reality. When we find ourselves confronted with the reality of our sin, we justify why we've done what we've done and we blame it on someone else because God knows it can't be my fault. God knows I would never do that. I would never make that decision. It must be someone else's fault. There is no justification for disobedience. There is no justification for partial obedience. It's what the scripture calls sin. It's interesting God calls His people to trust His timing even if it doesn't make sense. How many of you have ever expected God to act or move in a certain way and He didn't? Has anybody ever been there? Has anybody ever prayed, sought the Lord, believed that God was going to act in a certain way, 
and then the time came and the time went and, and, and God didn't show up in the way that, that, that you wanted Him to or that, that you expected Him to. Maybe you were praying for, for a, a situation at work and, and, and it never got better and the person whom you were whom, whom was giving you the hardest time, they were promoted above you, and, and, and the timing, you, you said, God, this doesn't make any sense. Or maybe you were praying for, for God to, to heal your marriage, or maybe you were praying for God to heal your loved one, or maybe you were, you were really seeking God when it comes to a certain situation, and, 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 and the timing, and it just didn't make any sense. All throughout Scripture, all throughout redemptive history, we see this pattern. God tells Abram, I will make you a great nation. Your descendants will be as plentiful as the stars are as the heaven, as the the sand is on the seashore. So shall your descendants be. And then Abram marries a woman named Sarah. And Abram's 100 years old and doesn't have any kids. And he says, God, what's going on? And so he, he takes matters into his own hands. He says, God, by my perspective and my understanding, you aren't going to fulfill what you said you're going to do, so I'm going to take matters in my own hands, and I'm going to have a child with my maidservant, Hagar, and we get Ishmael. That was not God's design. That was not according to God's plan. Then 13 years later, Sarah gets pregnant. And they name him Isaac, which means laughter. Because Abraham said, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Sometimes we have to trust God's timing, even if it doesn't make sense. Lazarus had died. Israel was in Judah, and God said, Jesus said to his disciples, he said, we have to go back to Bethany. They looked at him and they said, back to Bethany, that's where they just tried to stone you. And Jesus said, yeah, but Lazarus is dead. And he said, all right. And the scripture says that they waited and then went back. Jesus said, it's good for me, it's good for you that this has happened so that you may see the glory of God. As soon as he gets there, Mary and Martha run to Jesus and they say, they say, our brother has died. If you had been here, he would not have died. The timing of God just, just, it didn't seem to make sense. Jesus said, where have they taken? Took him to the tomb. Jesus said, roll the stone away. They said, he's been dead four days. It's going to stink. Jesus said, roll the stone away. Lazarus, come forth. And out of the tomb comes Lazarus bound. We have to trust God's timing even when it doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense. It was, it was six days and 12 hours and and sometime, and Saul's looking around and he says, there is troops less than two miles from my army of only 600 people. We are facing imminent death. I've got to do something. I've got to take matters out of God's hand and take it into my own hands. It's a good thing. It's a good thing that, that whenever God can't do something, we can do it for him, right? That's exactly what Saul did. He said, God, clearly this is too much for you. Clearly you can't handle this. Let me me help you. Let me take this away from you so that I can do things for you. I want to point out, God is not a man that he may be manipulated. Saul says, 
We must sacrifice. We must, we must do these rituals in order, to, in order to allow the favor of God to fall upon us. And God is not a man that He may be manipulated. Remember this happened earlier in the story of Samuel? What did the nation of Israel do in order to try and manipulate God? They took the Ark of the Covenant into battle. After they had been defeated, they said, I know, we'll bring the Ark of the Covenant, and then God will have to go to battle for us. God said, we'll see. We know how that works out for you. He allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be captured. He said, I am not man that you may manipulate. And here, Saul has not learned from Israel's mistake, and he begins to disobediently, he takes the matter, he takes the the office of prophet onto himself, and he begins to, to offer the sacrifice and offer the offering. And God says, what have you done? All sin carries consequences. I want us to see very quickly the consequences that this sin of disobedience, this sin of partial obedience carried. First of all, it carried a consequence that Saul's dynasty would end. Samuel shows up. He says, Saul, God had intended to make your monarchy, to make your reign a dynasty. But because of your disobedience, that ends. Secondly, God removes from the leadership of Israel, God removes Saul. Now we'll see throughout the the story of Samuel, we'll see throughout the story of of, of the the Israel uh, history that that Saul will remain as king, but God has removed his anointing from him, and God has placed his anointing on a young man who's a shepherd. A young man named David who has a heart for God. But this is the beginning of God removing Saul from the position of leadership. The first consequence is God removes the dynasty. The second consequence is the removal of office. But the third consequence and probably the most impactful consequences is Samuel leaves. Samuel represented for Israel. Samuel represented for Israel the mouthpiece of God. He was the word of God. He was the prophet. He said, thus saith the Lord. And at this point, at this point, the only time Israel heard from God was whenever Samuel, when the mouthpiece, when the prophet would speak. And so the consequence of sin is the word of God left. Israel stands before a mounting army before imminent and certain death and destruction. And the text tells us that because of the Philistine influence and the Philistine power, that not only were they standing there tremendously outnumbered, but they had no sword, they had no spear, even their garden tools. were in bad need of repair. They were completely and utterly helpless. For us, in our life, God desires to get us to that point of complete and utter helplessness. As long as Israel had an army, 
As long as Israel had a king, as long as Israel had something to work with, they would do what humans do, and they would take matters into their own hand, they would trust their own perspective, they would trust their own sight, and they would not trust God. But when God would strip them of everything that they had and make them completely and utterly helpless, they would have nowhere else to turn but to God. We saw this earlier in Samuel. Whenever God allowed the Ark of the Covenant to be captured and whenever whenever God allowed their enemies to prosper over them, whenever their enemies prospered over them, whenever they found themselves completely and utterly desperate, they cried out to God, and God showed up, and God moved in a miraculous way. We see this all throughout the book of Judges. We will see this all throughout the Kings. We will see this all throughout the Old Testament, that God moves when His people are completely and utterly helpless and cry out to Him. Because it is in those moments when we realize that we cannot trust anything but God. We cannot trust our strength. We cannot trust our intellect. We we cannot trust our abilities. But we must trust in who God is and what God has done. God desires us to be completely helpless before Him so that He can flex the muscle of His sovereignty. And it's only when we see ourselves in our truly helpless state, and we cry out for grace, does God pour out His grace before us. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We have this idea, this faulty idea, that somehow in our goodness, somehow along this, this, this process of salvation, that, that I made this wonderful decision to follow Jesus. Church, let me me remind you that you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Last time I went to a funeral, the guy laying in the casket was unable to do anything. He was unable to respond to the good news of the gospel. He was unable to respond. I could take a flashlight, shine it right in his eyes, and he couldn't open his eyes. Because we're dead in our trespasses and sin. It is God's grace who gives us His Holy Spirit. It is God's grace who regenerates us. It is God's grace who calls us by His grace to Himself. It is God's Holy Spirit who empowers us, enables us to be able to repent. It is God's grace that gives us the the adoption. It is God's grace that justifies us from our sin. It is God's grace that sanctifies us through our life. It is God's grace that will ultimately glorify us. It is God and only God. And it's when we find ourselves completely helpless in our sin, standing before Him, saying, I am guilty and I am begging for your forgiveness. That's whenever God shows up. He says, all those who confess their sin, I will forgive. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus said, all those who come to Me, I will in no wise cast them out. The woman caught in adultery, Jesus looked at her and said, Where is they that condemn you? Go and sin no more. Zacchaeus climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. Jesus said, Come down, I'm going to have supper at your house today. I am going to have fellowship with you. It is after they were in their helplessness and they cried out for mercy that Jesus meets them. This morning, I believe there are some of you here who are helpless. 
You are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Your plans, your efforts have blown up in your face. You tried to take matters into your own hands. You said, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and I've got a plan and it's going to do this and it's going to do that. And then you got to the end of the day and you look back and you said, well, that didn't work out. And now I am sitting here and I am in trouble. God said, I've got you right where I want you. I want you to experience the helplessness of your own decisions. I want you to experience the helplessness of partial obedience. I want you to experience the consequences of sin so that you can cry out to me. And like a father, like a father, I'm going to say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Because judgment is my strange work, but I bound in loving kindness. This morning, I want to remind us, helplessness is not hopelessness. On Good Friday, the disciples of Jesus were helpless. They could do nothing. But they were not hopeless. Because Sunday's coming. Let's pray. Father, there are those here who find themselves helpless. There are those here who find themselves experiencing the consequences of their own sin, the consequences of their poor decisions, the consequences of immorality, the consequences of idolatry, the consequences of sin. Now, they've blamed others, justified it their whole life. But this very moment, you've revealed to them that they stand guilty before a holy God. Those who are helpless this morning, you've given them the message of hope that though your sin be as scarlet, Jesus can make them as white as snow. If you're here this morning and you are helpless before God, He is calling you by His grace to turn from your sin. To place your faith and trust in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus for eternal life. And He has promised that He will give you a new birth. If that's you this morning, in just a few moments, I'll invite you to come. Maybe you're here and you just needed to be reminded that helplessness does not mean to be hopeless. Maybe you need to grab someone, come to this altar and pray. Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would move in this place and that we may respond with obedience. In Jesus' name we pray.